Hello and welcome back to the Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day. This is episode 36.2, which is a follow-on to 36.1. Now you don't have to listen to these in order, there's no need, but there, there are throughout this part some referrals back to the previous artworks that we spoke about in episode 36.1. Not disastrous, but might help you follow along. So sit back and relax as you enjoy part two of episode 36, Famous Art Cameos in the Movies. I'm going to talk about another Disney movie where a very famous painting makes an appearance. And this one, I'm going to be honest, I had absolutely no idea about this sort of little cameo Easter egg, if you will, within this within this movie if it wasn't for an article that I came across on Daily Art Magazine. So I'm going to give Daily Art Magazine a shout out here. And it was all about hidden paintings and movies. Mm-hmm. And I came across it just after we did our first one. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? The, the movie mm-hmm. rather is, is Beauty and the Beast. So as everyone knows, you know, Belle and the Beast, um, a very sort of iconic, absolutely love this movie. But, and of course, the beast lives in this incredible castle filled with all these brilliant, beautiful things. And according to Disney, one of the brilliant, beautiful things that he owns is Johannes Vermeer's Girl with the Pearl Earring. And for those of you who don't know this painting by name, you will definitely, definitely know it to look at. It's one of the, it's the I think it's the most iconic painting within art history, I think only second to the Mona Lisa, perhaps. <laughs> um, no one at me, I'm just saying. Um, it's, yeah, this beautiful young girl who just sort of very casually looks over her shoulder and stares directly out to the viewer. She wears this incredible tunic, this very beautiful yellow tunic, this gorgeous blue sort of turban headband. And of course, this sort of glistening white pearl earring, which is just beautiful. Now, Johannes Vermeer was a painter from the Dutch Golden Age, and he painted this in 1665. And what is brilliant about Johannes Vermeer, or what's interesting rather about Johannes Vermeer, is that he only painted about 35 paintings in his entire life. He did die when he was 40, or in his 40s rather, And there's not very much known about Vermeer himself. There's a couple of court records of things that happened and he wasn't a very well, he wasn't a very wealthy person, shall we say. There's court records after he died of his wife trying to stop the sale of his paintings. And it's a very just interesting story. But however, this painting is probably best known because of the 1999 um, book that, an art that a writer called Tracy Chevalier wrote called Girl with the Pearl Earring, which she de- completely sort of conjures up this story behind the, the painting that this was a servant girl in Vermeer's house and Vermeer has this sort of weird obsession with her, but there's nothing sexual there. It's just he just finds her an incredible subject and she is painted by Vermeer. She then leaves the house and on Vermeer's death, he leaves this painting to the young girl now of course this is all completely made up but it's also been made into a movie as well which I've never seen 
But Scarlett Johansson plays the girl with the pearl earring and Colin Firth is Johannes Vermeer. And Scarlett Johansson's sort of resemblance is genuinely quite terrifyingly accurate. And it's it's amazing how they can find actors and actresses to look like their sort of real life or sort of art historical counterparts. This kind of bends my mind a little bit. But what I think is incredible about this painting is that with Vermeer, as I said, you know, there's only sort of 35 paintings attributed to him. So realistically, within sort of the canon of art history, he is one of these people that when you buy any book about Vermeer, you're going to get every single painting that he ever did mentioned and or illustrated in it. So he's very accessible in that way. I don't feel that I am the best person to talk about this painting, however, because I have a brilliant episode. I think it's episode 20 or 21 with... Lloyd Spencer, who is a photographer and an art historian based in Leeds. And he has a real passion and love for Vermeer. And he speaks so beautifully of this painting. And I just feel like there are far more qualified people to tell you what you need to know about this painting rather than me. So I understand (laughs) it's a complete cop out for my second famous cameo in an art in an art movie. But what I would like to point out is, of course, you know, this is this painting is famous of course, because of this girl, but it has this incredible pearl earring. Now, what you have to understand is pearls are incredibly, real pearls anyway, are incredibly rare and incredibly expensive. And realistically, something this size that what the girl is wearing, someone as humble as Johannes Vermeer would not be able to afford it. So it's likely that this was a fake. Well, we're 99.9% positive this was a fake earring. And it actually speaks of the the Netherlands and their sort of their shipping and uh, traveling at, at that time. They were a huge, big shipping port. They did a lot of trade with Venice and the Venetians had this love of making glass pearls and it became a very popular thing. And actually in quite a lot of Johannes Vermeer's paintings, he includes pearls in somewhere or another. I think there's maybe about 12 of the 30 odd that he has that include pearls in some way. So it's a really, really interesting sort of thing to, to sort of look out for in his paintings. I would also say there's an incredible website called The Essential Vermeer that when you and I'll leave a link to this in the show notes below particularly for this painting I'll take you the link will take you straight through to this it has points of focus and there's maybe about nine or ten in this painting and the gentleman that's put together this website he just talks so beautifully and in a very accessible way about the painting and why it is such a beloved image. I mean, it's just so iconic and she's just so beautiful how she looks at you and these incredible sort of rosy lips. And another thing to remember about Vermeer is he was considered a master of light. And that is what you have to think about when you're when you're looking at something like this, how the light sort of hits her face and how everything is beautifully shadowed and complemented. And the, the compliments of colours as well between the blue of her turban that sort of goes into the, her sort of very luscious red lips and then into this beautiful tunic that she's wearing it's yeah it's just incredible so there are far more superior people that can talk about this painting than I can but I think it's a real treasure and I would definitely suggest that you go and check out um, Lloyd's episode and I'll leave that in the show notes below so that is my famous cameo part two of Beauty and the Beast 
and the girl with a pair of earrings. I highly recommend it. It's probably one of Disney's best uh, films for sure. It's something I've watched probably 50 billion times and I no word of a lie. I think I've watched it five times in one day once because uh, it's just so wonderful. So, okay. time for the third and last painting for moi. So, I'm going to discuss I Am Legend, um, which is a action sci-fi horror made in 2007. And I'll be honest, I don't remember the scene 100%, but I do remember clocking it when I watched it many, many moons ago. Um, the painting is in the background of Will Smith's character's living room. Um, it's a very famous post-impressionist painting. Might have, may have heard of it. Uh, it's called Starry Night by the one and only Vincent Van Gogh. Um, and I would arguably say, and I think people would agree, this is his most iconic piece um, and probably most recognised piece that he's ever done. So it was painted in June 1889 um, and it shows the view that was seen from outside of Van Gogh's window while he was in St. Paul de Mousseau in southern France. And he self-admitted himself after having a breakdown and when he infamously cut off his ear in December 1888. The painting shows a picturesque town with vibrant blues and vivid yellows of this dreamlike atmosphere what's so wonderful is that you can see every single brush stroke it was just the way that van gogh painted in this iconic post-impressionism way and also mm. just how you can also see how thick the paint is so it's almost like he just ha it just kind of shows like how he had to get this out and um, which is like almost like you can see how passionate and beautiful this is all the colours just work so well together. The trees are on the left-hand side of the painting and they rise like flames. It's just kind of like the way he paints it. it. just has... I can't emphasise how much movement is in this painting. And the sky swirls around the stars and the moon, which stand out because they're that vivid yellow and they're circled with just bright whites and it just pops so much because obviously the stars and the moon is the thing that you're meant to kind of clock straight away. Um, the painting also includes the planet Venus. Yeah, and as I'd said, the, it's, I can't emphasise how much movement. It's just the way that the paint kind of swirls around. It just kind of shows elements like the wind and the night sky moving, which just is so beautiful. Yeah, and it's almost kind of like, you know, it's a hot summer night. You can feel the heat sort of rise from the town. And you, can, you can see it and you can feel it in the brush strokes and the movement of the painting and this is just it's just one of these completely iconic ones isn't it where it's just it's done the rounds but again it's one of these things that it doesn't matter how many times yeah, you'll seen never it, I, I think that's what a lot of like mangle pieces like you'll never not be amazed at like what he created and the thing is though the painting that would have been painted from memory um because van gogh actually painted only during the day he did take artistic liberties with it. So they've had astrologists look at the piece because obviously the the night sky is kind of the focal point, the main subject matter. And they say that the moon would have been in a completely different direction. So right now it's facing the right, which is a waxing crescent. And um, for all you, you know, people into the moon, mm. <laughs> like I am, 
um, and how it's shaped will affect certain things. So in the painting, it's a waxing crescent. So it's that kind of Cheshire cat smile, moon, then it's off facing to the right. So it would have actually been a waxing gibbous, um, meaning it would face in the opposite direction, but it would have been that kind of Cheshire cat smile still. When he was in this institute, this is the only painting that he did about the night time. Every other painting that he did, well, there was about like during the day. So he did mm. paint the same scene. It's kind of just the way that impressionists were. They studied things throughout different times of day to see how light would affect it. But as he painted majority of time, well, he only painted during the day. Well, in this institute, all the studies that he did kind of around the... Was it a church or like a monarch or what was it? it no, like it was an though. insane asylum. Did he paint a church? I have no idea. Oh gosh, I'm, I have no idea. I mean, there Maybe is a church, there's a spire in this one. Okay, so he did paint a church, but it was it's nothing <laughs> nothing to do with that. But yeah, there's a spire, so I think that's where I'm getting my confusion from. Yeah, so this is the only painting that took place at night um, while he was in the Institute. I think he was there for like a year, yeah? I'm not too sure how long he was there for, but he was there for a little while, at least six months. And, you know, like you said, he, he was sort of self-admitted. And what I think mm. is really interesting is this is one of his most iconic paintings, but it is, people fail to mention again and again that he painted this while having a mental breakdown. Like Van Gogh completely... yeah suffered his entire life with mental health issues this is also completely well documented as well he was a passionate writer and he wrote to his brother Ooh. almost every day and a lot of these letters survive and I actually think uh, MoMA the sort of Museum of Modern Art in New York where this painting is you can go on to their their online archive <laughs> and read some of the the if you speak French of course um, and re and read some of the the letters between Vincent and his brother. It's it's an incredibly interesting thing and I think people have to remember yeah. that this man was disturbed in some no, way. No, I, I and yeah, and I think no, it's but not more, to take away from, from what his achievements were and how it is such an amazing tool to help people not get over but to kind of power through their mental illness it is you know the, the stereotype of an artist is the struggling artist is very much a trope um especially within like university that kind of you're kind of if you're not struggling or stressed you're not really working hard it's you know you you would see people especially not in my class but you would hear whispers if someone was like oh, they are never phased like they just do it and it works and it's just it just something isn't right they're not having a bad time and it was it's such a weird thing to to say that if you want to be an artist you have to be sad but obviously I think it does kind of go hand in hand because obviously you're maybe more in touch with your emotions it's the same with like musicians and stuff like that anyone within the arts tend to kind of have this tie with mental health mm. well I think you know modern day example Tracy Emin is is fabulous at that she is constantly sort of re-examining herself and her emotions and how people perceive her and how mm. she and herself thinks of of herself i wonder why they picked this one for i am legend because is i am legend yeah, not how it's like, um two of my like films apocalyptic, are like the world is anything and the world is messed up yeah so it's 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 a bit of oh god it's a bit of virus <laughs> oh no <laughs> triggered that it's essentially like zombies but they're like vampire zombies spoilers it's been out since 2007 really truly you 
only have yourself to blame if you've not seen this film. Will Smith is immune, so he stays in New York where all horrible things occur in the world and he stays there to try and study the infected and to find a cure, basically. But yeah, it's... I can't honestly, man, it has been so long, but I just remember being like, and it's like, I've, I, every painting that I talk about with you, I've got like where it is in the film, like in, in scene. Because um, I, I can't remember if I did that. I, yeah, I must have done that. Last, I think I did do that last time, but like it is bang center in the scene, like in shot, he's to the left of the scene. Um, and it's very much kind of like, poof, they're starting night. Um, and he does have other paintings on his wall. Um, let's see if I can get the picture up. It looks like he's got a Salvador Dali in it as well. Well, it just looks like Salvador Dali. Oh, right. With a lion standing on a wiggly rock, if you know that one off the top of your head. I was really gutted because I did go to Amsterdam a couple of years back and I went to the Van Gogh Museum and I was buzzing because I thought I'm finally going to see it. Um, and it was not there. And I was like, what? This is an absolute outrage. Like, what's the point of a Van Gogh Museum if there's no Starry Night? But many 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 beautiful paintings in that museum so if you ever get a chance to go it's incredible to see his work um in person because he he just i think my favorite thing is just how thick the paint is like it's just like he has to paint like it's almost like life or Mm. death like the urgency when he paints is just phenomenal when you see his work and even just like his pencil sketches and stuff like that like oh just chef kiss he is just so good and it's so sad he never knew how good he was he was and how the impact he had on so many people yeah no absolutely well what a great painting to (laughs) to include in in an apocalyptic film like that I wonder if there's again though but I wonder if no but I'm serious I wonder if why did they choose that painting was it was it because they knew the link to sort of the mental health aspect of it or the sort of Van Gogh's world was you know completely turned upside down as yeah. was Will Smith's character you know there's a lot of parallels there that you can completely lose yourself within um for all the film buffs that are listening um you know and please write in if you've got theories as to why yeah, any of 100%. these paintings were used it would be great to hear what you think about them because it's always just interesting to get someone else's opinion and we mm-hmm. could have completely missed something very very obvious and yeah you just don't know so please do get in touch all right, I feel it is time for the final the final one. So we're going to offer a little bit Genre. of light relief from your apocalyptic um, I am legend. And I'm going to talk about probably, a bit, like for my American listeners, I'm very sorry. No, they have to. No, they will. No they will. They will. person they is that we're going to talk about. Uh, well, not talk about. No, no, no. They, they know, they'll, know, they'll know they'll the painting. I don't know if they'll know. Okay, so we are going to talk about an incredible, an incredibly famous painting by an American painter called James McNeil Whistler. And the painting is known as Arrangement in Grey and Black, but it's more famously known as Whistler's Mother. And this painting, and I completely forgot about this. This was another friend that was like, I cannot believe you didn't mention this. And this painting appears... (laughs) And this is the when you asked me to do this, this was actually the first painting I thought about. Yeah, because it's such I just remember the scene so vividly. And I think I've only seen the film once, but this scene has just been ingrained in my mind. (laughs) Do you know what? Right? I was so what I completely forgot is it's not just this scene, this whole movie is based around this painting. 
So to give everyone a very quick recap, if you haven't heard of Mr. Bean the movie, essentially Mr. Bean is a security guard in an art gallery in London and an American institution pays $50 million to have this painting and Bean is the security guard that accompanies <laughs> the painting. So and he, I don't Hello. know why anyone would hire him because he's, com- he's a complete disaster. But he's like the whole idea of Bean is that he's slapstick. And just to sort of throw back to earlier, the person that wrote, um, Richard Curtis, who wrote Notting Hill, yeah. he also wrote or co-wrote rather Bean. This is why I just think this guy's a genius because he can just take it from like two very opposite ends of the scale here. So essentially what happens is Mr. Bean is a complete disaster. So he takes this painting to America. He is mistaken as an expert. He somehow is left alone with the painting in the museum before the big reveal. He sneezes on the painting <laughs> that is triggered. not behind glass, which just wouldn't happen anyway. Uh, let's not poke. Let's not poke holes in a theory here, but I'm just saying that there would be protective glass over something this iconic anyway, um, or also security systems that work anyway. So he sneezes. He tries to like wipe the the painting i'm gonna leave the scene in a link below it's on youtube and i must say it's i i was like i'm probably gonna hate this and i watched the scene and it's just so funny that's oh. the thing about mr bean he mr. It, bean like just even at 30 like i shouldn't like laugh but i just think it's hilarious <laughs> and oh just so good oh my like god put quote of the podcast so far <laughs> mr bean ages like white white Anyway, so he does this brilliant thing in the movie where, of course, he near, he completely <laughs> tries to restore it. He ends up drawing essentially a cartoon head on this on this woman um, because he puts the wrong sort of chemicals on it. And it's just disaster after disaster. Um, there's a brilliant scene where he tries to get the painting out of the frame and down a corridor when he, <laughs> he puts a cloth over it and he pretends it's a trolley <laughs> and he makes the noise. <laughs> it's just... It's just so good. It's just so good. And then he then he meets someone who's also got a trolley and what he does to get around the situation. Oh, it's brilliant. So it's in the link below. Please go watch it. I prom if you need a laugh, go and watch it. it. It is so funny. Anyway, so he does this really clever thing where of course he completely destroys the original and he replaces it with a poster. And what he does to trick the museum staff is that he covers the poster with raw egg yolk and then sort of heats it with a hairdryer to make it look like real paint, which I think, I don't know if that would work. I'm not, like any conservation people, please get in touch. Although they'll probably just be like, ha ha ha, I can't even believe you've asked me to get in touch. That wouldn't work. Uh, He also puts it back in the frame with chewing gum. So this is how, you know, it's just a disaster. And then he's like mistaken as this um, like professional. It's up, oh my God, it's just brilliant. And I'm going to leave. He does this speech. This Hold on, the, I'm no, going to just play the, the speech just spoke, for a couple of minutes it? of it because it's brilliant. So this or is him. Because in the, in, the, in the series, he never speaks. So this is the whole, what do you like, mean? This is the yes, whole thing yes, about Mr. Bean. Yes. It's completely just physical You're right. comedy. The only thing he says is Teddy. Or he'll go... And I think this is this whole and <laughs> yes, but like the whole film, <laughs> I think is also in silence, and he'll maybe just say one or two words. But this is the first time he speaks, and I think this is what was so like 
mm. I think just so wonderful about this film is because everyone was like, oh, Mr. Bean speak. <laughs> like, <laughs> no one had ever heard him speak in sentences. <laughs> right. Okay. So I'm going to play, I'm going to play the scene. This is him in the museum giving everyone, everyone is gathered to see this big unveiling. So I'm, I'm only going to play a little clip of it just because of copyright reasons, but it's a three minute long speech. It's funny. Here we go. What have I learned that I can say about this painting? Um, well, well, firstly, it's quite <laughs> big, which is excellent. Because if it was really small, you know, microscopic, <laughs> then hardly anybody would be able to see it which would be a tremendous shame. Um, secondly, <laughs> and I'm getting quite near the end now of this analysis of this painting. Secondly, um, why was it worth this man here Spending 50 million of your American dollars on this portrait. And, and, and the answer is, um, well, this picture is worth such a lot of money because... And the reason he gives is ridiculous so go and follow the link in the clip in the I show feel notes like below it's just on your podcast it's just brilliant like <laughs> the painting is big <laughs> <laughs> and i'm getting to the end of my analysis now that made me laugh so much because i was like oh, so many times when i was at university i would have loved to have just done that to get your word count up that's far this way. <laughs> <laughs> Furthermore, dear sir, I think you'll find, yeah, we've all been there. Oh, right, okay, so I think I've literally just spent the last 10 minutes talking about how good the movie is, never mind the painting. So we're going to move on and talk about the actual painting. Uh, so as we said, it's known as Arrangement in Grey and Black. Um, it was later known as Arrangement in Grey and Black number one. But sort of the the sort of slang phrase for it, or what it's more sort of known as, is Whistler's Mother. And it's a painting, oil on canvas, by American-born painter James McNeil Whistler. And it was painted in 1871. It was painted while the artist was living in London. And it depicts his mother, Anna McNeil Whistler. Now, this, for me, when I look at it, people rant and rave about mm -hmm. how fabulous this painting is. And it's very sort of Victorian yeah. boring. Like I would put it up there with like, there's not a lot going on. I I think the most detailed thing is, is he does this really beautiful sort of like floral design on the curtain, which is to like the left-hand side of the painting. But this painting is so iconic. And in America, like they love it. They absolutely love it. They've used it on, you know, it, it, it symbolizes motherhood, the love of a mother and child and just, I don't know, it's, it, it, people hold it so, so dearly. And I would love to know if you're listening, if you love this painting and why, because for me, it kind of leaves me a little bit cold. And I think that's okay to say that you can't absolutely love everything, but I think it's very interesting that it's so well loved. So it was first shown at the Royal Academy of Arts in London's summer exhibition. Now, the summer exhibition happens every single year. Mm. And the only year it didn't happen was, of course, 2020 because of Jeez. COVID. 
and that would have been 252 years of it going so it's been it's been going for a long long time and when it was shown in London people hated it not because mm. of the subject matter but, but because yeah. he'd given it this abstract title because you know Victorians play by the rules and they hated the fact that it was called Arrangement in Grey and Black a portrait of a painter's mother so they just really couldn't understand why he had called it this and people in the UK hated it some people loved it and there's an amazing there's an amazing Scottish critic called Thomas Carlyle who loved the painting so much he commissioned Whistler to make a portrait of him in the style of Whistler's mother and not in a dress that's not what I'm saying I mean like black overall uh, coat indoors and funnily enough so as I said you know uh, Thomas Carlyle who was a Scottish art critic and this painting so Arrangement in Black, which is Arrangement in Grey and Black number two, can actually be found in the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery in Glasgow. So another sort of close to home. But this painting has been on postage stamps. It's also used as uh, an inspiration for a sculpture, the Mother's Memorial in Pennsylvania in Ashland. It was used for in Canada as well as a as, a, as part of a poster during World War One to recruit people to come and join the army to to help in World War One, and it's called Fight for Her. I'll leave. Um, I'll, I'll show this, and it's just this incredible thing that it's been used in all these sorts of d- different ways. But like I said, completely hated in the UK. So it was eventually sold. It went to Luxembourg. It was sold, and then it eventually was bought by the French government. And it is now on display in the Museum d'Orsay in Paris, which is just one of the best museums in the world. And Whistler himself really, really loved this painting. And he couldn't really understand why people couldn't warm to it. And I've got a great quote here that says, just think, to go and look at one's own picture hanging on the walls of Luxembourg, remembering how it had been treated in England, to be met everywhere with defiance and respect. And to know that all of this is a tremendous slap in the face to the Academy and the rest really is like a dream. So essentially, everyone in the UK hated it. The Royal Academy in England were like, this is disgusting, get it off the walls. And they almost never, they almost never let it in. Um, But they had a change of heart last minute and did. And people in the UK hated it and it went abroad and it's been lost. So we've lost a great treasure just because at the time it wasn't our cup of tea and now very much we would love to have something like this in one of our collections because it's mm. by an although an American artist, very influential in Britain. There's also a brilliant, um, so as I said, Whistler was based in London, although American. He was one of these people, he had a great network of friends, of artists, of art critics, and really used his network and really sort of championed art for art's sake. You know, there didn't have to be a, an intellectual oh, reason nice. for someone to make something. If it just felt right to make it, you should make it. And and it's this, honestly, that I cannot believe how famous this painting is. Not only has it, of course, been like the subject of a movie, but it's been compared to as one of these iconic things in comparison to, you know, Leonardo da Vinci or Munch's The Scream. So I've got a quote here from an art historian that says, Whistler's mother, Wood's American Gothic, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa and Edvard Munch's The Scream have all achieved something that most paintings, regardless of their art historical importance, beauty or monetary value, have not. They communicate a specific meaning almost immediate 
to almost every viewer. These few works have successfully made the transitions from the elite realm of the museum visitor to the enormous venue of popular culture. And it's true, you know, it's on postage stamps. It's on sort of, you know, World War One recruitment posters. Yeah. It's sculptures. I've seen it on tote bags, you know, all sorts of things. And actually the, the one that's in Glasgow of Thomas Carlyle, Arrangement in Grey and Black, number two, you know, you can buy sort of a, a print of it in the gift shop and things like that. You know, it's this incredibly important painting. And I just think it's so funny that they have taken in this movie this incredibly important painting by this American artist and com just completely let the two worlds collide in this sort of very sort of funny way. But I think it also really breaks down, I think why it's so funny is because it's, you know, art is seen as this thing that's not supposed to be funny and you're not allowed to sort of include it in these sorts of gags. It's to be taken seriously and it's not this sort of joke subject. And it really can be, that's the thing. And um, yeah. This is, that's my, my last um, famous art cameo for this time round. So I really hope you have enjoyed it and that you've learned something. And if you have a particular favourite, do get in touch and let us know. But also if there's any that we've missed that you think, oh my goodness, this would be definitely a part an three. For a what part what else have we missed? You know, let us know. You were interested, but this is maybe me being more of a film buff is film scenes that have been recreated or films movie scenes that are taken from paintings so you when you see the scene you're going oh my god that's that painting mm, potentially well I'll tell you what let's let's leave or it part, up to the to the great or and wonderful listeners of, of the joe's art history podcast paintings because there are Get so many and it is yep so many so many so so many <laughs> And there you have it, the end of another episode of the Joe's Art History Podcast. First of all, I'd like to thank Nicole McLaughlin, aka Nico Paws, for coming on once again to speak so brilliantly about famous art cameos in movies for part two. And if you've enjoyed this episode and would like a part three, please do let us know. There is, I really do think we could take the mickey out of this. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of famous art cameos in movies. Or as Nicole suggested at the end of this episode, if you'd like to see famous scenes in movies that were inspired by famous paintings and artworks, then please do let us know. This is a really, we do really enjoy this topic, so we would be more than happy to bring you a part three. As always, all the images that we discussed on this podcast can be viewed on my Instagram highlights reel, as well as my Instagram main feed page. So if you go to the highlights reel at the top, if you go to episode 36.2, this will show you all of the images that we discussed throughout the podcast. And there will also be an image on my grid as well, so you'll have to sort of potentially scroll down depending on where you came across this episode and everything will also be there. If you'd like to get in touch and discuss anything that you heard in the podcast, please feel free to do so. You can email me, joesarthistory at gmail.com or you can get in touch via Instagram. My DMs are always open. Please make sure to like, rate and subscribe to this and if you do have time, it would be wonderful if you could give the podcast a review. It does help other listeners find us and who knows, might even help us move up the charts. We've been in the iTunes charts a couple of times throughout the duration of this podcast, so it's quite exciting. Finally, thank you so much for listening. My name is Joe McLaughlin, your host and resident art historian, and I look forward to welcoming you next time on the Joe's Art History Podcast. Until then, keep learning and remember, art is for all.
Bye.